Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard are quiet, and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarrels, he who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who spits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of the wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of the fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Ryan. Good morning, everyone. Happy Sunday to you. My name is Josiah. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Um, If you're a guest with us, man, we are so, so happy that you guys are here. Um, hanging out with us this morning. It's our absolute joy to be able to worship with you, each and every one of you. So thanks for being here this morning, making time um, on this 4th of July weekend. Everybody have a good 4th of July? Yeah, good. Anybody else have to work besides me? Okay, good. All right. Um, So we are in Ecclesiastes. Man, we are just nearing, I promise, the point to where things get really, really good. And uh, um, it's coming. It's coming. And this passage this morning is somewhat hinting at it. And it's just given us enough just to, it's like building this tension all the way into the climax where the preacher Solomon kind of kind of lays down the truth and the hammer and, and gives the culmination of this whole book. Like, what are we talking about here? Um, I've said in the past when preaching the last passage that, man, like sometimes um, it's really hard to put together a sermon um, with, with the passage because uh, Solomon seems to kind of doesn't take any one coherent, um, you know, direction, but ties in a ton of different threads all together, right, to make a point. Um, 
And so this passage is no different. And uh, quoting one uh, commentator, this passage might be one of the hardest to interpret and to preach. So thank you, Ryan, for (laughs) scheduling me this Sunday. Um, But I appreciate the book of Ecclesiastes, man. Um, I appreciate it because it's both prescriptive and descriptive, meaning this, that there are natural laws, um, both moral and, uh, and natural laws, that we all fit into, right? That we all have to kind of fit inside within our life. These, these laws in life, these rules in life. But then there's also, we also understand that there's a brokenness to this world that we live in, to this natural world. That because of sin, there is a, um, a disunity at times. And, and we feel that. There's wise ways of doing things which have good effects, and there's foolish ways of doing things which have harmful effects. And having wisdom means you can discern which is which, basically when it comes down to it. And one thing we must not do, though, is to take general principles that we, uh, general principles of wisdom, and make them this iron law, this kind of one size fits all, right? Um, This was the, we can, the most gleaming gleaming, um, example of this is Job's friends, you know, in the book of Job, where... Um, to them, it was just like, you know, what goes up must come down, you know. So if you're having all these troubles, you must be in sin. Repent, right? So all true things, but not necessarily one size fits all. That's not wisdom. Um, but we need wisdom. We need to figure out what wisdom is. We need to have discernment in order to make it through life. And so this passage in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is basically... Um, given us these very, very practical proverbs um, and tidbits of wisdom in order to navigate our way through life on a very practical level. Um, Ryan and I, my wife and I, we went hiking. Um, what did, Ryan, what, when did we go hiking? What was, a, was that for our one-year anniversary? Our fifth? No, it wasn't. <laughs> You're making me look foolish. Um, no, it probably was. Um, so anyways, it doesn't matter. We went, we went hiking in North Carolina in uh, Catawba Falls. I think it's how you pronounce it. And one of the best memories uh, I've ever had. And we, uh, I started looking up you know, different trails and which ones we should do. And I found this one, Catawba Falls. And uh, it said level difficult um, you know, level of difficulty uh, was expert or something like that. And I was like, it's fine, we can do it, you know, let's, let's go make it happen. We don't really hike that much. I like it, but, you know, we're not necessarily experts. And I was like, are you sure? Like, yeah, it's fine, we'll, we'll make it, you're with me. It's all right, babe, come on. And so we set off, we find it, we you know, park, we head off on the trail, and I'm reading every detail beforehand, like you're gonna get to this point, you're gonna have to make this turn. Um, there's this one where you, ha- you got to a river, and, um, and it said that there were stepping stones to get across the river and that you had to cross in order to continue on. And this was like at the very beginning of the trail, like, I don't know, maybe a fifth of the way in or so. And uh, so we get to this river and I should add that it had been raining for like a week straight up to this point. And there were no stones anywhere to be found. And so I'm like, this is the path, like, they gotta be here, like, and so we start walking up the river, we start walking down the river, and eventually it's like, look, we're either gonna turn back and just, you know, just not do this at all, forsake this whole trip, um, or we're getting across this river, and so dagnabbit, we're going across this river, and um, so what we decided to do, the real smart thing, is um, in the middle of, I think it was December, um, we take off our shoes, we take off our pants, there was no one else around, and, um, and we, we try to, you know, stay as dry as possible, and I was like, you know, this probably isn't that deep, you know, so um, I, got a, I got a good stick now, and we're just going to wade our way through, and I said, but don't worry, I'll go first, Ryan, and so I, I head out, and I have a backpack, I have my shoes, and I have the stick, and my pants, and everything, and I'm walking, I get 
halfway through the river and it's like up to my chest at this point. And I'm slipping. My feet are numb. I can't find a grip. The, the rocks are sharp. And so I'm like, I can't lose my, my clothes. And so I chuck them across and I just swim the rest of the way. And I get to the other side and I was like, my wife's not going to make it on her own. There's no way she's going to be take, taken off down the mountain. So I was like, babe, here, take this stick and I throw it across the river and it hits a branch and lands in the water and goes all the way down the mountain. So I, I was like, all right. So I have to swim back, get my wife and hold her hand the whole way. She slips and falls underwater. And we're both soaking by the time we get to the other side. And we have to hike the whole rest of the, the trail, which was probably, I don't know, another, at least an hour or so. But we had a good laugh. I wasn't laughing at, in the moment, but it was, it was a lot of fun. Anyways, it's a silly story, but my point is this, that you need wisdom in order to kind of get through a trail, right? If you're going to go through a forest, if you're going to go through any type of um, journey, you need wisdom on how to get there. And in order to get there, you still have to go through, right? And so it's either like you're going to go back and, and, not, and not take the journey, or you're going to head on. Sometimes you don't know how to get there. Sometimes you don't know the way, and sometimes you just got to figure it all out on your own. Um, but other times you can utilize and use wisdom that God gives you through all different means. That is really what Solomon is talking about in here. Is like you're going to go through life. You're going to have to navigate through life. Um, on many different levels, you're going to need wisdom. And there are points you're not going to know what to do. And, um, and, and so here, he's going to give us some really practical um, things to help navigate through this life. Life is messy and it's mysterious. Ecclesiastes helps us traverse these challenges. It's, uh, it, get, it gets messy sometimes. And uh, Melvin Tinker... A commentator, he says this, Wisdom helps one pilot oneself through the contradictions of life. Much like a boat sailing down a river that contains rocks, both seen and submerged. Wisdom helps us see and understand how to navigate when we can't even see the rocks in front of us, right? Um, It's sometimes easy to see the things that are, um, well, sometimes it's, it's obvious and it's easy to, to know what to do when you, when you see what's in front of you, but when you can't see what's in front of you, then what do you do, right? So first, before we get into any further in the passage, um, I want to offer us a few misconceptions to set straight concerning wisdom. The first one is this. Wisdom is not ultimate. So let's not forget what the preacher had told us early on in the book. If we go back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 13 um, through 16... I'll just pick up in 16 here. He says, For the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. For as the wise, as, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. There is a limit to wisdom, right? Lim- wisdom is not ultimate. There is a limit to it. There is both a limit in how much wisdom we can have and then how much wisdom can do for us. It is limited in our finite bodies and minds. Yes, it is better to have wisdom than to not have wisdom and be a complete idiot. But wisdom gets you the same thing as folly does. Death in the end. That's what the preacher was saying early on. And that seems kind of you know, just morbid and fatalistic in, in mentality. But, the tr- but it's truth. And I think it gives us a level ground to start from again this morning to remember, hey, wisdom is good. We seek after wisdom. We desire wisdom. We ask God for wisdom. But wisdom is not everything. Okay? Number two, and now back in our passage this morning, starting in verse 13, the second misconception to be set straight is this, that wisdom does not equal, equal popularity. Read with me in verse 13. I have seen um, also this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. 
But there, was a, but there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. The illustration of wisdom here shows us how true wisdom in the world actually works. If you want to be wise in the world, according to how God defines wisdom, then don't plan on popularity, right? Because here, here's what he says, right? Wisdom is better than might. Okay, I can agree with that, right? We can all agree wisdom is better than might, right? Because I may not be able to do something, but I may know how to get it done, right? And I can give direction and I can give um, understanding towards someone else. I can give counsel to that person, I can at least have my mind, even if I can't accomplish it myself. We can get behind that. But then he says, though wisdom is despised. So what if wisdom wasn't even something to be sought after or to be um, elevated in culture's mind? Wisdom is better than might, though wisdom is despised. Are we still in favor of it then? We say, huh? Huh? True wisdom from God to a world that hates God is very rarely accepted and more often times than not despised. Friends, if we live in a world that is anti-God, then wisdom that comes from God is going to be very rarely accepted and more often times than not despised in the world that we live in. The world celebrates might, success, an achievement, but the godly honors God regardless of being heard. The godly honors God regardless of whether you're heard or not. So do we seek after wisdom because it makes us look good? No. We seek after wisdom because it helps us traverse life and to honor God in the, par- in the process. The third thing is wisdom is easily corruptible. Verses 18 through um, the first few verses in chapter 10 there. Wisdom is easily corruptible. Read with me uh, in 918. It says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks in the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. A fly is a very small creature, is it not? A very insignificant thing in this world. Something so small, though, can mess up a whole lot, is what the point here is from from the preacher. There are things that you and I can say and we can do, and it can completely tarnish our whole reputation. I could stand up here, I'm very fully aware that I could stand up here and I could say something this morning and completely ruin any kind of perception that you guys have about me. And you probably don't have a good perception of me, I don't know. But say you do have a great perception of me, and I say something really stupid this morning, right? And I completely ruin that. It doesn't matter how many good things I said. It doesn't matter all the good things I did beforehand. If I said something just completely foolish, you know, that would ruin any kind of reputation I had, right? That's the point that Solomon is trying to make here. And here's what he clues us in here on in verse 2. He says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Solemn clues us into the issue here is not necessarily with externals, but with the heart. You know, the, the use of right and left to depict good and evil is an, is an ancient thing. It's been around for a long time, basically because most people are right-handed. And so they equate that to righteousness. And most people are not left-handed. So they would use that as a depiction for left-handedness. Did you know that um, the Latin word sinister actually translates left? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. So this is a very common thing. And basically what he's just simply saying 
is that your heart, the wise man's heart, will lead him to righteousness. The fool's heart will lead him to evil doing. Is your heart inclined to righteousness or towards evil? Answer honestly this morning. Is your heart inclined toward righteousness or evil? It's rhetorical. You don't have to say. Right? Well, let's, biblically speaking, it's the latter. Let's, let's, let me just pull out a, a few verses here. And just fair warning, I have a ton of scripture this morning. So hopefully you have your Bibles. I put most of them on the screen if you don't. But try to follow along, underline. And um, because these just really, I feel like, round out this passage very well. So biblically speaking, our hearts um, are inclined towards evil. Here's, here's Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. This is not a sick like you just need to go to the doctor and get a prescription and then get over it in a week. This is like mortally sick. There's no recovery from this sickness. Like you're on your deathbed sick. Jesus, what does he have to say? Matthew 15, starting in verse 10. He says, hear and understand. I love it when when I come to that in the gospel and Jesus says, hear and understand. Pause. Listen. Are you listening? It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that this defiles a person. And then Peter asks him, Jesus, you know, you got to explain this to me. What, What does this mean? He responds, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? I can't say it any more clearly to you, Peter. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. For all of our natural evil inclinations, is it even possible to be wise? Is this even a possibility for us this morning? That's really the question before we go any further. Can you and I become wise? Of all the things that Jesus mentions in this list, wisdom didn't make the cut, did it? Wisdom didn't spring out of our hearts. So where does this come from? Well, church, there is good news. For one sinner may destroy much good, as Solomon states. But as David Guzik says, one Savior changes everything. Solomon was fully aware of our first representative, one sinner, Adam, who ruined everything, right? But we know, we are acquainted with our second representative, the better Adam, the God-man, Jesus, the Savior who has redeemed, is redeeming, and one day he will redeem all things, including this earthly body and mind. And it will have no limitations Are you acquainted with the Savior? Are you acquainted with the Savior? You can be today. The bottom line is this for us, church. True wisdom is not found in yourself. It's found in God. True wisdom is not found in and of yourself. And this is the great danger that we have in in our culture today. And really not just today, but especially today. And since it is found in God, James 1.5, he tells us, and this is a reminder, we say this, I think, every week in this pat, and as we go through Ecclesiastes, but we must remember, remember it. We can ask God for wisdom because he is a good father. He gives it generously and without reproach. If any of you lack it, ask him for wisdom. So, we will now look at the remaining passage, um, and we'll see ways to walk practically in this wisdom. And I I want us to really open up in our our minds, and there's some some of this language in here is going to be really, it's just going to feel a little, um, 
um, I don't know, disjointed maybe at times and even a little rough to kind of get through. And, and, um, but I really want us to like, let's settle in. Let's hear what the word of God has for us. Let's hear these Proverbs. And even they, they seem so overly practical. I'm going to do my very best to help um, pull out a spiritual understanding for us this morning. And uh, I know that God has something good for us in it. So um, let's dig in. Um, so I call these the practical, um, practical wisdom for everyday life by King Solomon, a.k.a. the preacher. This is probably the New York Times bestseller if there was a book that he wrote, right? Practical ways for everyday life. Um, I like to think of King Solomon as a real thug rapper sometimes, you know, with a big, all grilled out, big gold chain, and his stage name is The Preacher. All right, anyways. Um, so first one, wisdom and how you walk. Wisdom and how you walk. Uh, verse four, let's read there. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground. Do you guys remember the movie Idiocracy from like 2006? No? Nobody's seen Idiocracy? (laughs) Okay, so let me explain it real quick. So Idiocracy is this like... um, um, What's the term? Um, I can't think of the term. But anyways, huh? Yeah, yes, it's a satire. Thank you. That's not the word I'm looking for, but that is a good word. Um, And it's this like sci-fi comedy. And uh, here's the premise. There are these two people, this average Joe and this average Jane. They take part in this military experiment where they're put to sleep. And they were supposed to be asleep for only a number of years. And it ends up, there's a mistake and they're asleep for 500 years, right? And then when they wake up, they find themselves in this like, it's like this dystopian type setting, right, where um, everybody around them um, is changed, the whole culture. And here's how it's changed. Well, they've given themselves into consumerism, into marketing, and they've completely dumbed down um, everything to where uh, it's anti-intellectual. The average IQ is like 20. So here's an average Joe, average Jane, and uh, they find themselves to be the smartest people in the world right? They're the smartest people on the planet and they have to help solve issues like how to grow food because the people are, instead of watering the plants, they're putting electrolytes in the ground. And, and, and so um, they, have, they have to traverse this um, whole um, scenery and here's this kind of topsy-turvy, upside-down Um, type of scenario and this is exactly the kind of picture that the preacher is trying to portray for us that everything is upside down instead of the rich we can think of this as wisdom being elevated we see stupidity and instead of princes we can think of this as uh, nobility we see slaves on horses today celebrities are celebrities not because um of wisdom, and certainly not because of nobility, but because simply they're celebrities, right? And we, in culture, more tragically than this, we elevate their opinion because of it, because of who they are, because they are a celebrity. Anytime there's a political discussion, we got to get the celebrity on the TV to give his or her opinion about the discussion, right? You've seen this on TV? And we want to hear what they have to say because of who they are, not necessarily because of what they've done. And I'd see you shaking your head like, no, I know me neither. But there are moments where a culture elevates this. It's in a, we elevate opinion over everything else. And what this has done is it's led to a pursuit of oneself, the individual over everything else. I was in Starbucks with Pastor Ryan this past week, and we're sitting there, and I look at the the board behind um, him, and it was a quote by Lady Gaga, 
and it said, don't you ever let a soul in the world tell you you can't be exactly who you are. And Ryan's response to this was, that is the greatest sin in our culture today. And I agree, because here's where it comes from. It comes from a place of the individual, the one self, the one looking inside of ourselves for real truth. You will find truth if you just look hard enough inside of yourself. About 30 years ago, William J. Donnelly, he has this uh, view of culture and where it is headed. And here's what he says. Look at this. He calls it what he calls the confetti generation. He says the confetti generation um, will witness an aggravated version of today when all ideas are equal, when all religions, lifestyles, and perceptions are equally valid, equally indifferent, and equally undifferentiated in every way until given value by the choice of a specific individual. This will be the culture, the confetti era. When all events, ideas, values are of the same size and weight, just pale, pink, and green, punched out, die-cut wafers without distinction. How do we respond to such a situation today if this is reality? And as um, one person said, Matt Hodges, that we have moved um, away from relativism and we're now in what he would call an expressive individualism. That it's, the in, it's not that we don't know what truth is anymore. We can find objective truth. And objective truth is not outside anywhere. Objective truth is inside of you. What do you say truth is? How do we as a church respond to that? We also must see, church, that we are not exempt from that, um, that failure and that downfall ourselves. Even with our own methods, even within our own traditions, we can put value, overvalue, and elevate oneself. Matt Hodges says it allows, talking about expressive individualism, it allows us to appear as if we're worshiping God when in reality, we're bowing to the God of self. It acknowledges the power of Jesus, but convinces us that he intends to use his power to further our own self-centered goals and aspirations. It agrees we can be certain about truth, but points to our own hearts as the source. Take a second to think about that. Where is objective truth in your life? Where do the patterns of your life point to to say, to speak to like what you believe? Paul gives a similar charge um, as Solomon. Solomon's charge um, to us first is this, that we read here, do not leave your post. Verse four, do not leave your place. Soldier, stand firm. Do not leave your post. That's our response. And Paul's is similar to Timothy in his second letter to this young disciple. He's speaking about the godlessness of the world in the final days. And if you would turn with me there to 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 through 5. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, he tells Timothy. And then moving on to verse 9, skip with me there. He says this, this is his charge. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. His charge is to be steadfast. And how? And the preacher says, 
Calmness is the answer. Well, how does that make sense? Because in the, in the face of a culture that might not just um, totally disregard what you have to say in regards to wisdom, but disdain it, but to disdain it, to that we can respond with calmness. To that we can respond with a calm spirit. Remember Solomon's words in verses or in chapter eight, verse one. He says, "A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed." And then in verse five of chapter eight, "Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way." Calmness is the answer in the face of when we are ridiculed when we are despised, when wisdom is despised. Moving on in verse 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Verse 8 says, He who digs a pit will fall into it. A serpent will bite him who breaks through the wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. The preacher now shows us four examples of danger when choosing not to use wisdom. So these are super practical Right things, everyday things, right? Just normal life. But if you don't use wisdom in them, you will get hurt, right? So um, the first one, he who digs a pit will fall into it. Um, this is related to hunting, and um, hunters back then would dig pits, and they would put nets over them, and if you weren't paying attention, then you could fall in the hole. Simple as that, right? That's Solomon's point. Pay attention to what you're doing. Use wisdom. If you don't, you're going to get hurt. A serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. I've been told that even today in Israel, there are stone walls everywhere and they have to be rebuilt. They have to, stones have to be moved all the time. If you're, not, if you're careless and you're moving stones and you're not checking behind them, you might get bit by a snake. Right? What's the next thing? He who quarries stones is hurt by them. It hurts like junk if you're trying to move stones around and you drop it on your foot. You gotta be careful. He who splits logs is endangered by them. Ask my father. Okay, so the story goes that my father was splitting wood when he was a kid and he missed the log and he put the axe into his shin. And if you ask my father, he said he had to walk seven miles back to home bleeding. I don't know really, but the point is this, that like he, he had to learn some wisdom and how to use the tools that God gave him, his father gave him, right? Whichever way you want to look at it. These are all very practical things, but yet they can be dangerous to us. And this is the same tr- and these are, it's also equally true for any area of our life where wisdom is needed. Have you ever thought of the, the phrase, use wisdom? Like, just use wisdom. Well, it comes from an understanding that wisdom is the quality of being wise, and it's having experience, and it's having knowledge on a topic, Right? And so we're taking that experience, we're taking that knowledge that we've gained, and we're applying it. It's using wisdom. But what if you don't have knowledge and experience on a topic? What do you do? Well, he gives us in this next verse a kind of a, a good answer. Read with me here. If the iron, in verse 10, if the iron is blunt, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. If you haven't taken the time to sharpen the edge of your axe, you can still chop the wood, but you're just going to have to swing a little harder, and you might get hurt doing it. So, not having wisdom, not having gained experience, not having gained knowledge in life does not necessarily um, excuse us from the work. We still have to be about the work. In church, the work is never complete. The work is not complete yet. There is still so much to do before Jesus comes. And I don't mean to say I know when Jesus is coming. I don't. But whether he comes right now or if he comes a thousand years from now, there will always be work to be done. And we will not have all the answers. We will not know how to traverse every single area of life. 
We will not know how to apply wisdom to every area, but we're still called to the work. We're still called to use the means that we have been given for the glory of God. We're still called to learn wisdom. This is what Jesus tells us. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We're still called to this great commission. We're still called to use wisdom. And that looks different in all areas. But, it does not, but just because we do not know the way does not mean that we're not called to it. Paul to the church of Ephesus, he says, Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Ephesians five fifteen through 16. And as I've already mentioned previously in James chapter 1, if you don't have wisdom, God is a loving Father who takes great pleasure in giving generously to His children. So when we don't know the way, we don't have the answer, then we ask God. Ask God and he will show you how to walk in wisdom. Second point, wisdom in how you talk. This is the remainder of the chapter here. Wisdom in how you talk. Let's say you're a snake charmer. Right? Anybody a snake charmer? Okay, good. Because um, I don't know anything about being a snake charmer, so I didn't want to be called a fool. But... Let's say you've worked really, really hard all of your life to learn this skill, to learn this craft, to charm this snake, to understand the snake's ways, to be able to interpret its moves and how it responds to your movements and so on and so forth. You've learned the flute, you know, all those kinds of things. And then all of a sudden, one day, you get really comfortable with the snake and you kind of forget your place before this snake and it bites you. What good is that to you? Nothing. Because then you're dead, right? So here's the point. A fool can be related to a snake charmer that is bitten by a snake because his own lips consume him, Solomon tells us. His own lips consume him. Do you know anyone that makes you think, bro, just stop talking. Please just stop talking. Don't look around the room. We know people, right, that do just words upon words upon words and no one can tell them any different and they are just consumed by their own words. They just know everything. This is the kind of person that this person that Solomon's talking about. He's talking about a person that just loves to hear himself talk and he's a fool. And even if we don't even recognize the foolishness in it, in it. Here's what we should know. Do not be mesmerized by people and their words, but honor people's conduct, right? So has the person putting money where their mouth is? Can the person walk the talk? Do you see fruit in this person's life that backs up what they say? That's what we honor as God's people. Again, James 1 gives us some great advice. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Verses 16 through 19. The final section of this chapter is an analogy of two kingdoms. One with a king who is a child and the other is a son of nobility. Now, Solomon here is not condemning a young king, right? Because he was once a, a young king. He became a king when he was a child. And we know that kings did many great things, um, even in their young age. So, But what Solomon is saying is this king is childish. He's like, he is a child in nature. Right? There is no nobility within this king. So woe to you, O land, if your king is such. He and, he and his princes feast at improper times, not for strength, but for drunkenness and pleasure. Because of his lack of concern for anything else but himself, he is irresponsible. And like a roof, when it is not maintained, the kingdom crumbles in disrepair. God's gifts are twisted into something idolatrous. Bread is no longer sustenance and nourishment, but made for laughter. 
Wine does not just gladden the heart, but also all of life. Money is the tool by which all enjoyment and satisfaction is made and accomplished. This is the picture that Solomon is painting of this kingdom where the king is a child. There is no responsibility. Whether you are wise or a fool, it really comes down to a certain posture in life. To be wise means to have a posture in your life. Consider Solomon's posture in this prayer when he became king. In 1 Kings 3, 7-9, through 9, he said, Lord my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen. A people too numerous to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an obedient heart to judge your people and discern between good and evil. That's a prayer right there. Give your servant an obedient heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Solomon had a posture before God when he became king. He knew like, man, I don't know a thing. I don't know a thing here. And God, I need you. I need your help. The fool doesn't ask such things because he doesn't perceive his need. The wise is the neediest of all. Needy before God who does not owe him or her a thing yet wants to give it generously. Needy because although he or she is weak, they know that their God loves to use weak people to accomplish his purposes. They know this. And so they go to their father. Give me wisdom. Give me understanding. Give me discernment. Give me an obedient heart to follow you where you direct me and lead me. However, in the final verse here, we, if we keep reading, we see that Solomon's concern is not really for the king and the political leader in this context, but his concern is for his subjects. Because here's how he finishes the chapter. Verse 20. Even in your thoughts, now he turns the direction, right? Away from this picture of this two kingdoms, from the foolish king and the wise king, the king of nobility, and he turns the direction to the readers now, and he says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Okay, so we just have this picture of what this king of foolishness looked like, this child of a person, and he says, even in your thoughts, do not curse him. Nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Now, that might sound a little weird. It is kind of, but not really if you think about it. We have similar sayings in life, right? A little bird told me. The walls have ears, right? We say kind of weird things like that. That's all it is. It's just Solomon um, using, using an, an analogy to, to help us understand that. What you say might get found out. So in a very practical sense, he's saying, in this context, don't even utter a word, because if the king finds out about it, you're done for. In our context, in a very practical sense, watch what you say, because somebody might find out, and you might be found to be a fool in the midst of it. You might be found with a foot in your mouth because of what you've said. On a spiritual sense, Do you not know that your Father in heaven sees and hears everything that you say and do? Solomon knew this, or else why would he ask or tell the reader, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king? Why would he say thoughts if it was all about just somebody hearing about it? Solomon knows that what we do before God is utmost, and the most important thing before what we do before men. And think about something small and insignificant thoughts. I mean, just my thoughts. What, what, did, what did, those don't hurt anyone, right? Remember the analogy of the fly and the perfume. How something so small and insignificant ruined 
something beautiful, something intended for beauty. So can our thoughts, if we do not keep them captive and take them under control. Think of someone right now, church, that you have ill thoughts towards. Just get them in your mind. Someone that you have ill thoughts for. Maybe, maybe you don't know them. You know, maybe it's not somebody personally. Maybe it's a, maybe it is a friend. Maybe it's a political leader. I don't know. And ask yourself, what? Examine your heart before God in the matter. Ask yourself, why? Why do I have ill thoughts towards this person? Is your heart upright in this position towards this person? Because Jesus warns us this in Luke 12, 2 through 3. There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered. Nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you have whispered in the ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. We have to make sure that before we worry about what others think of us and acting in a wise way just to have people's approval or to have people follow us or people to commend us, that we are doing things and considering what God thinks of us firstly. After all, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In closing, Ben, you can come up and we close here. If you want an easy way to remember how a little folly can destroy the strength of wisdom, remember the three seemingly small animals that Solomon gave us as analogies, the fly, the serpent, and the bird. And remember how all of these are seemingly small. And we don't think much of them, but yet he proposes them to us to give us a point here that folly, a little folly, can destroy the strength of wisdom. The fly spoils much good, the serpent consumes the careless. The bird will sing your song, church, every word of it. He will tell it. But know this, Christian, you have a Savior who redeems all things, who crushes the serpent's head and wipes away every wrong as if it were never there. If you feel like a fool this morning, that's okay because Christ is your victor, or at least he can be. If you first submit your foolishness before him and say, God, I need you. I'm a fool before you. I have nothing to bring. God, you are all wise. Let me tell you this, church, he's big enough. He can take it. Whatever you have for him, he can take it. He will cleanse you and he will make you wise. He will clothe you in robes like his son. And as Paul tells us to put on the mind of Christ, put on the mind of Christ. Christ is your wisdom, church. He is And with that, I'm done. Let's stand and we're going to respond with a song.